Janice Munson and her husband Dan were shopping in Littleton, Colorado. And as they were driving around that small community, they came behind a silver minivan that was going unusually slow. First they were frustrated, but then they became concerned when this minivan swerved onto the shoulder. And after swerving onto the shoulder, this van swerved the other direction into the lane of oncoming traffic. And there were cars in the distance that were headed their way, and this van was in the wrong lane. And so Dan and Janice, they didn't know what to do. They, and the car was moving so slow, they pulled beside it and looked into the window, and the driver seemed to be asleep. Well, they began to panic. Dan, who was driving, he, he turned on his flashers, and he started blinking his headlights and trying to get the attention of these cars that, that would be coming soon and would hit this van head on. But Janice, in a moment of just pure instinct and adrenaline, she jumped out of the car because it was moving slowly. She opened the door, jumped out, and ran beside this minivan. And she banged on the window and yelled. And the driver was still unresponsive. And so she's running beside this van. And then she grabs the door handle, opens it, jumps into the passenger seat. And she, she slams the gear shift into park. And the van halts immediately right there. Just in time for these cars coming, the opposing traffic to see and to move around. And they whizzed past this van. Nobody was hurt. Nobody was injured. Janice learned later that the driver was a diabetic and was suffering from insulin shock. There were other people in the car, and they were all in danger. She did something extraordinary. Janice Munson and her husband Dan, they were heroes that day. Now, I don't know about you. I have never done that. I've never jumped into a moving car and put it in park and saved a family's lives. I've never pulled anybody out of a burning building. But when I hear a story like that, I kind of want to. You know? And I, I think, you know, part of us, we wonder, what, what would I do if I was in that situation? Would I do something like that? And I find myself thinking, I want to live in such a way that, that I do something extraordinary, right? Like Janice Munson that day. Now, for us as believers in Christ, we all have that desire to be extraordinary, but it, it's a little bit different, right? We might say it this way. Again, most of us feel this. We would say, God, I want you to do extraordinary things through my life. Don't you want that? I want that. You know, when it's all said and done and my time on the planet is through, that God has done extraordinary things through my life. I remember reading the book Brooch Co., as a kid, about a missionary, Bruce Olson, to an indigenous tribe in Colombia, and how he gave his life to them, he suffered with them, and eventually they came to know Christ, this whole tribe was changed. And I, and I remember thinking, God, I want to make a difference like that. You know, maybe I won't go to Colombia, but God, I, I want to be used by you to do extraordinary things for your sake. You ever feel that way? I mean, even today, do you, how many of us would say, God, yes, 
please use my life to do extraordinary things. Now, the problem is for many of us, our reality oftentimes doesn't feel that extraordinary. Feels pretty ordinary, if we're honest. Maybe this week you found yourself in the car line for like the 700th time in your life. You're sitting in the car line at school and you're kind of inching closer to pick up your child and you're thinking, this is my whole life, this. This is, what, this is my life. I, I sit in the car line and I drive my kids to here and to there. This is it. And you think, gosh, there's nothing extraordinary about my life. Maybe some of you found yourself in meetings this past week and you're in a million meetings and you didn't call most of them, but you have to be there. And so you're sitting through these meetings and you're just like, this is painful. And you're thinking, this is my life. Meetings that I don't want to be in. And, and God, are you really up to something big in my life? It sure doesn't feel that way. Some of you were cleaning up the kitchen maybe last night. Your kids haven't recognized all that you do for them as a parent. And they, they don't joyfully and gratefully just bring their dishes to the sink and and put them in the, the dishwasher. And so you're, you know, you're cleaning up the house and you're just frustrated and you're just thinking, this is not that significant. My life feels pretty ordinary. You ever feel that way? And, and the hours go by and they turn into days and weeks and years. And, and you know, maybe if you're like me, part of you in some of those moments, some of those quiet moments, you wonder, Am I making a difference? Is my life amounting to anything extraordinary? Let me say it this way. You, in those moments, you think, God, are you going to do anything extraordinary through me in my one life? So what does it look like to live a life that's extraordinary? Think about that for a moment. What does that look like? And maybe more importantly, what does it look like to live in such a way where God does extraordinary things through us? What does that look like? And how do we move towards living like that for all of us today? Where we say, God, I'm living in such a way that I'm available to you to do extraordinary things in and through my life. It's a really important question. If you have your Bible, let me invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 4 today. Colossians 4. We've been exploring Paul's letter to the Colossians, and he's been making the case that Jesus is supreme, that Jesus is greater than everything. He's greater than creation. He's greater than even new creation, all the believers who come to faith in Christ, that Jesus is greater than the law and religious rules. He's greater than sin. And, and then, Paul, he urges these believers to live rooted in the reality of who Jesus is, to respond to who they are in him, their identity, by putting on the clothes of compassion and kindness and humility, to, to, to be a counterculture to the familial and social expectations put on them. And then, Paul, we get to, to chapter 4, and he draws the letter to a close, but he, but he does it in a fascinating way. Join with me as I read verse 2, begin in verse 2 of Colossians 4. Paul, he says, Devote yourselves... To prayer, being watchful and thankful. Now, this word for devote, it means to make it your deliberate purpose. Give it constant 
attention. Give prayer your constant attention. Now, the reason why we're commanded to do this is because this is not our default mode. In other words, we don't just naturally find ourselves devoted to prayer. That's why we're told, be devoted. I love how the Bible doesn't paint a rosy picture of prayer. So glad. In chapter 1 of Colossians, verse 29, Paul, he says, I'm struggling with all the energy Christ works within me. And we know from the context, he's talking about prayer. And then in chapter 4, as we'll see in a little bit, Paul says that Epaphras is, is wrestling in his prayers for you. And see, prayer is not always easy. Sometimes it feels like wrestling, doesn't it? And so Paul, he says, devote yourselves. Give this constant attention. And then he gives two qualities that are to describe the way we pray. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Now, watchful does not mean don't close your eyes when you pray. Some kids are really good at this. I love around the table at dinner when one of my kids says, Lily had her eyes open during the prayer. And, and, and you say, how did you know that? And they say, I just could sense it. You know, I, I had my eyes closed, but I could tell she had her eyes open. This is not saying keep your eyes open. When it says be watchful in prayer, it's saying be alert, be awake, which is proof theologically that coffee and prayer go together. It says be awake when you pray. Some of us, we really need coffee to help us with that. Now, when it says be watchful, it could be a reference to what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. But either way, the call here is to be awake spiritually, to not just say the words, but you're aware of what's happening. Secondly, be thankful. Be thankful. Now, Thanksgiving is a huge theme in this book, as we've seen for the last couple of months. Thanksgiving is mentioned seven different times. But throughout the whole Bible, not just Colossians, thankfulness is always bound up with prayer. And prayer is bound up with Thanksgiving, let me say it this way, theologically we could say, where there is little gratitude, there is little prayer. But when we feel grateful that the result is we we find ourselves praying, think about it this way as an illustration, thanksgiving, gratitude, is like smelling salts for our prayer life. It wakes us up to... Reality, it brings us to our senses, it motivates us, right? And that's why for some of us who struggle to pray, and I struggle to pray, there are seasons in my life where I struggle to live out this. It's, it's why one of the places we begin is with God as giver, that we contemplate who God is as giver, that the breath in my lungs is from him, everything I enjoy. And as we cultivate gratitude, we begin to pray. There's a, a connection there. And then Paul, he shifts and he gives a specific prayer request. He says, pray for us too. Now, what's he about to tell them? He's about to tell them what to pray for. Paul, as he's writing this, he is in house arrest in Rome. So just fill the blank in in your mind. What's he about to ask them to pray for? I know what I would ask. Pray for me to get out of this dadgum jail and just, you know, to be free and 
Pray for God to bless me. You know, that's what I'm going to ask for. What does Paul say? He says this, pray for us that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Isn't it interesting? Paul doesn't mention his imprisonment until the very end of this letter. And when he does, what does he ask for prayers for? That a door would be opened, not to his jail cell, but a door opened for the gospel to go out. And then he prays this. He says, pray that I proclaim it clearly as I should. That was Paul's heart. Now, personal prayer requests are not bad. We're told to cast our cares on God because he cares for us. But this burden for Paul, this transformed the way he thought about everything. His life, his ministry, the way he thought about God, his, his burden for the gospel being clear so that people could, could hear it and respond to it. It's so profound to think about. And then we get, answer into the, we get insight into the answer of this prayer request later. Paul, he says, pray that I would proclaim the gospel clearly. Now, we don't know how much time precisely happened between Paul writing this and Acts 28, but we know from Acts 28, later in Paul's life, this is what Luke writes. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house, house arrest, and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, and without hindrance. And the reason I bring this up is God answered this prayer. Paul says, pray that I would proclaim the gospel clearly. And then we see in Acts 28, God has answered that prayer. And, and I share that because the Colossians who prayed for Paul, I doubt, I mean, for many of them, they may not have known if God ever responded to that prayer request. I don't know how many of them read Acts 28. And it's a great reminder for us to pray, to be devoted to prayer, even when we can't see the outcome, that God is often doing far more than we realize in his way and in his timing. Now, Paul, he continues, but he he makes a shift, and he says this in verse 5, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Now, this phrase, make the most of every opportunity, it literally means redeem the time or buy back the time. It's like an investor who looks across the landscape at all the different opportunities and says, I'm going to invest there. How amazing would it be if you had a crystal ball and three years ago you're like, I'm going to invest in real estate and Zoom And that's going to be my investment. In the same way, this says to us, when we look at everything in our lives, we are to invest in what? In our interactions with outsiders, with non-believers. I don't know about you, that's convicting to me. And what does he say? He says, be wise. What else? Look at the next verse. He says, let your conversation be always full of grace, Season with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. What's, what's the Bible's vision for engaging outsiders? Be full of grace. 
doesn't say, let your conversations be full of lectures or let your conversations be full of opinions. Some of us are really good at that. No, let your conversation be full of grace. And he references salt, seasoned with salt, which we know in the ancient world, salt was a preservative, but it was also a flavor, just like it is today. And I think that's what Paul has in mind here. He's saying your presence in a conversation should add flavor. It should add value. I kept thinking about my son who recently he, were eating Chipotle and he's literally, he's got a salt shaker and he's salting every individual chip. You guys have, you have kids? It's like, dude, how much salt do you need? He's like, well, it tastes better with it, right? Salt adds flavor, it adds value. And so the idea is that if you sucked out all of our conversations with unbelievers, something's missing. There's, there's something missing. There's a flavor, there's a, a value that's missing. And, and, and note, too, that it does not say, let your monologues be always full of, of grace. No, let your conversation and then it references answering, that you may know how to answer everyone. Well, referencing answering tells us what he has in mind is dialogue. It's, it's an interaction that we are to live in such a way that invites the curiosity of the outsiders around us. They say, tell me about this. Why do you live this way? Are you living like that? Am I living like that? Warren Wiersbe tells the story of a pastor named Dr. Will Houghton. He's a pastor at a church in New York. He later became the president of Moody Bible Institute. But before that, he was a pastor in Atlanta. And when he got hired to this church in Atlanta, somebody in that local community was suspicious of him. And they hired a private investigator to follow him around. Please don't ever do this to me because I don't know what you would... you know. So this private investigator follows this pastor around without him knowing and then after a few weeks, the private investigator reports back to the person who hired him and said, I can confirm that Dr. Will Houghton's life matches his preaching. And the story goes that because of that, the man who hired the private investigator became a Christian. He put his faith in Jesus. He says, there's something real here. He said, that's Paul's heart, that's God's heart for us, that we are to live in such a way that outsiders see it and they see the wisdom and the grace and they're curious and they ask and they want to know more and they experience life in Jesus. Now, Paul, he, he continues and he shifts from final instructions to final greetings. He mentions a bunch of people, as the cool kids would say. He has a lot of mentions. He tags people so to speak. It's like he's saying at and all these people. And I want you to look at this with me and notice the number of people that Paul mentions. And we're going to talk about why. He says, Tychicus will tell you all of the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. He is coming with Onesimus. And Onesimus was a slave, former slave. And we learned about in Philemon, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Jesus, who is also called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have paved, proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, 
who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis, which by the way, those three cities, Colossae, Hierapolis, Laodicea, that's kind of the tri-city region that Paul has in mind when he's writing this letter. After, now let's see, he says, our dear friend Luke, verse 14, the doctor and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. It's interesting to think about. This was written 200 years before there was ever a church building. You know, I mean, the, the, the church, our roots as Christians is house churches. This is, this is how the, the church exploded. doesn't mean that buildings are bad, but it's great to remember that the church existed way before there were buildings. And buildings can help us, but they can also distract us from our mission and from remembering what it's really about. Verse 16 says, after this letter's been read to you, see that it's read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. That was probably Ephesians. It could have been a lost letter. And then verse 17, he says, tell Archippus, see to it, that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Now, the most common word in all these verses that we read is the word greetings. It appears eight times. Now, what does that tell us? What does that tell us in the inclusion of all of these people in this chapter? It tells us that what we're looking at when we study Colossians is not an encyclopedia of theology. It's a letter written by specific people to specific people who are connected through Christ and who love each other now. The fact that this is in our scriptures, because some of us, we get to this part of the chapter and we just skip it because it's like, oh, there's nothing. You know, the fact that this is in our scriptures, what does that mean? What does that tell us? That the end of a powerhouse of a letter in the New Testament. I mean, Colossians has some of the highest Christology of any book in the New Testament. And the end of it is the naming of ten names. What does that tell us? What does that tell us about ministry? What does that tell us about God? It tells us that it's all about people and relationships. It's all about people. And theology, which is a lot of what we talked about, who God is, who we are, theology, if it's right, theology always finds a way towards being expressed in relationships into people. Or we're missing it. Now, when you look at these verses, a couple things jump out that I want to point out to you first the diversity of the people that Paul mentions. You just look at these 10 people. You have diversity in their gender, men and women. Most of them are men, but Nympha, we believe, was a woman. They're, they're diverse racially, Jews and Gentiles. Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus, Justice were Jews. The rest were Gentiles. They're diverse professionally. I mean, these people are prisoners, slaves, ministers, doctors, and, and they had other jobs as well. They're diverse socioeconomically, rich and poor. Many of them are on the margins 
of society. There's this tremendous diversity of all these people, and yet there's unity. They're connected to one another and to Paul through Christ and the gospel. I love how, if you noticed, when he's reading these names, he refers to Onesimus, who was legally a slave or a former slave. He refers to Onesimus as a dear brother. And then he refers to Tychicus, who was free. He was not a slave. He refers to Tychicus as a bondservant in the Lord. And that word bondservant literally means slave. So Paul, as he's listing, describing these people, he calls the slave a brother, and he calls the free guy a slave in Jesus. It's this great subversion. It's like Paul is saying that the gospel breaks down all of these barriers, and we're connected to one another through Christ. It's so powerful. But not only is there a diversity in terms of these people, there's also a diversity in terms of what they are doing and what Paul references the tasks they accomplish. Tychicus was a messenger to the Colossians. Onesimus was an assistant to Tychicus. Aristarchus, Mark, companions to Paul. Jesus Justice was a comforter to Paul. Epaphras prays for the Colossians. Luke is a doctor and a storyteller. We know he wrote Luke and Acts. Demas was a companion to Luke and Paul. Nympha, she hosted the church gathering in her home. She might have led that as well. Archippus was a servant to the Lord. You see the variety of these tasks? Now, everything that these people are doing is important. And we know that because Paul is effusive in his praise for them. And it it becomes really clear when you read these verses that Paul could not be doing what he was doing without them. They were indispensable. And that's why he says in verse 11, he refers to these people as his co-workers for the kingdom of God. Now, what do these people have in common in terms of what they're doing, how they're contributing to Paul's ministry, to God's ministry? What do they share in common? There's people who are doing hospitality and evangelism and church planning, and then there's just simple stuff like this person is being there for someone else or this person is encouraging. There's all this diversity. What do they have in common What they share in common is simply this, faithfulness. Some of these people are doing what we would describe as big acts of faithfulness. They're planting churches and they're sharing the gospel. And then others are doing small, what we would consider small or ordinary acts of faithfulness. They're encouraging, they're being a friend, a companion, they're delivering a letter. But what all of them share is faithfulness. And through their faithfulness, God did something amazing. Now, I want to share a quote with you. I thought this was so helpful. Alexander McLaren, he says, what have big and little to do with things that are indispensable? What have big and little to do with things that are indispensable? In other words, if a task is indispensable, if you can't do without it, then what do the words big and little have to even do with it. When we look at these verses, delivering the letter to the Colossians was indispensable, but being a companion to Paul was indispensable. Praying for the believers, praying for Paul, that was indispensable. All of it mattered. 
all of it. And it was all used by God to do something extraordinary, not just then, but now. I mean, think about this. Here we are thousands of years later today, learning from and being transformed by this letter that came about through the contributions of all of these people. God was doing something extraordinary through all of them and all of the parts they played. And so the the truth of these verses and what we need to see today in this text is simply this, that God does extraordinary things through ordinary faithfulness. This is what God does. God does extraordinary things through ordinary faithfulness. The ordinary faithfulness of the 10 people in this passage was not insignificant. God was doing something extraordinary. What does it look like, I asked at the beginning, what does it look like to live a life that God uses to do extraordinary things? What does that look like? It looks like a life marked by ordinary faithfulness. This is what we're called to. Faithfulness, not just in the the big and the splashy things that we think of, but, but in all things, in the ordinary things, faithfulness to God. God is extraordinary things through ordinary faithfulness. So, so what, you know, for you and, and for me, what do we do with this today? Why does it matter? I love verse 17. And Paul, he says, tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. See to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. Now, this word for ministry, it doesn't mean something super spiritual. It just means service. That's what this word means. See to it that you complete the service you have received in the Lord. Now, the reason I love this is because we don't know what the ministry, we don't know what the service was. What did Archippus receive in the Lord? We have no idea. But clearly from Paul's theology, it could have been anything. I mean, it could have been pastor of church, but it also could have been sharing the gospel. It could have been being a companion and comforting and encouraging. It's just... Could have been anything. And and so let me ask you today. What is the ministry that you have received in the Lord, you personally? What is it? I'm going to give you two hints that might help as you try to discern the answer to that question. First of all, it's something you've received. In other words, it's, it's in line with your gifts, with your opportunities you have. And then secondly, it's about people. It's about people. That's what God's heart is for. And all ministry service in the New Testament, it has the aim of coming alongside and helping people become who God wants them to be, who God's called them to be. What is it for you? So here's the question that maybe you just write on a note card and you put on your dashboard or in your Bible this week and you think about what opportunities for ordinary faithfulness are in front of me? I want to encourage you to just consider that question. What opportunities for ordinary faithfulness are in front of me? Is it praying like Epaphras? Is it being a comfort to someone else like Jesus Justice? Is it delivering the news of the gospel to somebody like Tychicus? Or is it something totally different? What is it for you where God has you Where is he inviting you to step into 
opportunities for ordinary faithfulness. And let me just say this as we wrap up. Do not diminish your ordinary faithfulness. Do not diminish your ordinary faithfulness. These men and women, these 10 people, they had no idea that their names would be recorded in Scripture and that thousands of years later, in Johnson City, Tennessee, we would be gathering and talking about and learning from their example. They had no idea. And similarly, you have no idea what God can do through your ordinary faithfulness. You have no idea. Do not diminish what God can do, extraordinary things, what God can do through your ordinary faithfulness. And let me say this too, that wherever you are today in your journey of faith, your relationship with Christ, where you are today is a result of someone else leaning into ordinary faithfulness. None of us in here today are where we are because we got here on our own. We, we are here because people, men and women over the years, have invested, have loved, have stepped into moments to be faithful to God, and we are the recipient of that. I don't remember a lot good about middle school. It was a terrible time in my life, but I remember Don Gagne. He was a small group leader at my church, and Don Gagne reached out to me one time and said, hey, do you want to go see the Dallas Mavericks with me? And I was a huge Mavericks fan, never been to an NBA game. And he somehow, through his work, he was not rich, but he got two courtside tickets to the Mavericks game, right behind the Mavericks bench. And so he reached out to me, just a, a kid in his small group. who He knew, he, he might have known that I was having a terrible time in middle school, but he knew I loved the Mavericks. He said, will you come with me? And we drove two hours to Dallas. We sat. I still remember. I remember sitting there and being like, these players are so tall. I, I just was blown away. And I think that's when I realized it's not in the cards for me to be an NBA player. You know, it was that moment right there. But it was amazing. And, and I'm still thinking about it. I'm still talking about it. Well, you know, 25 years later, and I wasn't a part of his family. He didn't owe that to me. But Don Gagne saw and stepped into a moment of ordinary faithfulness. And it made an extraordinary impact on my life. Don't diminish your ordinary faithfulness. And where is God inviting you to step in? And not to change the world, but just to be faithful. Where might that be? Because God does extraordinary things through ordinary faithfulness. Will you pray with me? Father, we're just so grateful that this is who you are and that we have these names that we can learn about and the truth that, that this text reveals, which is, God, you are up to way more than we can see or imagine and the amazing thing, God, is not only do you save us, you invite us to be a part of what you are doing. And all of us here today, regardless of our gifts, our limits, our weaknesses, the season of life we're in, God, your desire for all of us is that we would step into moments of being faithful, being available to you. So God, would you help us to know what that looks like? 
Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being committed to our deep transformation. Thank you that even when we feel useless to you, we're not. And in your providence and in your grace and wisdom, you're inviting us to participate in what you're doing, extraordinary things in this world. Help us, God, to listen, to lean into those moments. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.